It seems like an appropriate time to say a few things uh, together in common in public um, that are things that I've heard from and processed back and forth with basically all the board members individually over the course of my five weeks on the job. Um, when I agreed to join you in this project, I said that this is the most interesting university in the country. I believed it when I said it, um, but what's awesome to be a month in is now I can say it uh, with more texture and with more certainty. Um, many of you know that I use the analogy a lot that in Atlanta, there is one word for cold, wet stuff that falls from the sky. In Alaska, there are literally 39 differentiated words for snow. Um, I'm probably only at the place where I can see three or four or five of the texture differences, but eventually I'll get to 39. Um, and I think this is the most interesting university in the country. Um, Partly, that's because of the amazing things that you all have been building over the last decade plus. It's nice that uh, getting to speak with you in public together for the first time in this calling got to follow that wonderful uh, tribute to Kent, who's been just a prince of a human. Uh, to me, the, the servant leader term in there jumps out at me far more than all of the quantifiable successes. Um, but there's just, there's, there's great accomplishment in that man, but there's even more uh, character. But back to the accomplishment piece, those of course are not tributes uh, to one individual. There are 86,000 souls on this campus. When you look at what an email distribution list looks like internally, if you hit send in the morning uh, to our faculty and staff, uh, to our administration and staff, to our undergraduates, to our graduate students, to UF Health, it's 86,000 people. Um, and the tributes of what's happened in the last decade here are really amazing. The trajectory is breathtaking. Uh, and I'm honored to be a part of a team of folks who get to steward that. Partly, what's amazing about this place, though, is external to us. It's the dynamism of this state. Um, if Florida were a standalone economy, it's basically Mexico. Uh, it's the 15th largest GDP on Earth. And the upward arc of the curve of people moving here isn't going to stop anytime soon. There are push and pull factors about why people leave other places and why they come here. Um, but the Sunshine State, as this has been sort of America's tourism capital for over half a century, is genuinely becoming the Sunshine and Innovation State. And there are all sorts of reasons why the sort of Sunbelt migration of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s that was sort of north of I-70 to south of I-40 in America is becoming more intensely focused on Florida. Also Tennessee, Georgia, Texas, but Florida is the number one winner. I don't have the current stats, but in October, November, I made sure to look them up. Uh, and ballpark, there are more billionaires in Palm Beach every winter now than there were, and Palm Beach is four miles, than there were billionaires on earth 17 years ago. That's just a weird stat. And I think people who live in Florida don't understand how dynamic the pull of this place is for folks who are building big and interesting things. <clears throat> and there's insufficient uh, supply side to upgrade the human capital of what's needed and possible in this state. So part of what's amazing here, uh, part of why this is the most interesting place is because what you've all been doing already. Part of what's amazing is because of the external environment in which we get to be the flagship and land grant institution. 
But part of what's amazing about this moment as well is just the raw potential. There is so much here that's already been made great. There's also so much here, which is just a huge opportunity. And I'm gonna speak more in a minute about what I think the term raw potential means, um, but I'm gonna defer that for a minute and just say, so that we have a, a shared shorthand, programmatically, if you look at the agenda before us, before this institution, when Kent had his generous comments to be made about the ambition of this place, not just from eight years ago till now, but from now until eight years and well beyond eight years from now, um, I think there are at least five, I want to say buckets, but I got in trouble uh, with the chairman last night for accidentally having a verbal tick that maybe comes from too much uh, McKinsey and BCG and private equity consultant speak in my background. So I will try to excise the word buckets uh, from my language and say categories. Um, I think there are five big programmatic categories before us. There's a lot more than this, but there are at least these five. Number one, uh, we need more applied research and we need more valuable applied research. We have done amazing things at this institution. We have changed the world in lots of ways, and yet the potential for us to change the world is gigantic. Our scientists, researchers, and engineers lead the way, way, and we need to ask hard questions about where are we already great? Where are we good? What are Florida's biggest challenges? How is Gator Nation gonna solve them? And so we want more research and more valuable research. Number two, we want more life change for students. This includes a rigorous, rigorous curriculum that challenges our students and equips them to become well-rounded, lifelong learners because the challenge before us, not just at this institution, but as a nation, and frankly, as a world at this moment with the pace of technological change into which we've begun, but onto which we haven't yet fully grasped, um, we have a civilizational challenge to create lifelong learners out of everyone, and there has never been such a community in human history. Um, that means we have to have a career services program that is second to none and make sure that the life-changing stuff that happens here on campus becomes life-changing and world-changing stuff that is just as dynamic still at age 24, at age 27, at age 31 and beyond. We, we shouldn't think of ourselves as primarily serving undergraduates that are 18 to 22 and then a small subset of professional or graduate students. We should think about this partly at a blank slate level. What sort of institutions does the world need for 15 to 35 year olds? Entering a world where you're leaving dependency and mom and dad's house and heading into a world where whatever sector you work in is going to become obsolete multiple times over the course of your work career. What does it look like to have a world where 25, 30, and 35-year-olds recognize that they're probably not going to do the same thing to serve their neighbors and pay the bills at age 45 that they were doing at age 25? Nobody's ever had to answer those questions before. We need to do more life change. That includes daily stuff on campus as well. Some of the mundane presentations yesterday, really important ones too. Heather had both really significant, obviously meaty, and also more mundane. We talked about parking in the pre-meetings to this. Turns out parking matters a lot because we're headed toward a world where there are gonna be more scooters and less cars around here, and that's pretty great. But there are a whole bunch of places where we didn't master plan that. 10 or 15 years ago. So the dining hall experience, uh, the field, court, track, mat, 
uh, stage, these places are just as important, the co-curriculars and the extracurriculars, as the core curriculars, but we need to be more rigorous about all of this, for we need to do more to change the lives of students in the time they're with us. Number three, we need better faculty compensation. Who are the best faculty? Tenure track, yes. Professional track, yes. Other models that we haven't thought of. We need to know who are the best faculty who produce the most research, who do the most to change lives in the classroom and outside the classroom, who makes this place great and dynamic and special. We need to identify them and we need to pay them better. I wanna be clear, this isn't all just happy talk because it probably doesn't mean every single individual is gonna reap these similar rewards, but the faculty as a whole, I want much better faculty compensation than we have right now. Buildings are important, but buildings don't make students fall in love with science or history or philosophy or literature. People do that. Buildings don't cure cancer. Those buildings are a necessary tool in route to treating cure cancer, to mitigating suffering, and to ultimately curing it. But ultimately, it's people who solve that. We need to solve energy transition and climate change riddles. People solve that. Buildings don't. Buildings are necessary tools. We need to have better on and off sensors on our light switches uh, that we talked about yesterday. These are critically important means to an end, but we need to invest most of all in our human capital. The power of AI, I applaud what Joe Glover did in keeping Hypergator out of one particular college because AI is not a vertical, it's not a discipline, it's a tool, it's a language, it's a part of everything that we're all gonna need to do. And the very visionary decision to fight the bureaucratic battles to say Hypergator doesn't belong in one place, that'd be like saying, you know, the English language belonged in one department. Uh, we needed to do what happened to build a broad substructure and we need the beautiful new building that we have uh, in that space. But buildings are not gonna harness the power of AI. People are gonna do that. And so we need to invest more in our people. We also need to invest more intentionally in our people. We need to go and steal the best talent from across the country. This is a beautiful place, it's a glorious place, it's a visionary place, and if you're the best in your field, you shouldn't wait to retirement to come to Florida. Come to the University of Florida right now because we wanna partner and build together. So we need better, but especially we need more targeted faculty compensation, rewards, and satisfaction. Fourth, we need faster and more nimble partnerships. Um, higher education is changing, and most of our competitors mostly don't understand that. I think if, if you talk to most university presidents and provosts across the country, they think technology is really gonna change higher ed. In the next 20 or 30 years, it's gonna change a lot, maybe two or 3%. It's crazy talk, right? Higher ed institutions are gonna change much more in the next 10 to 20 to 30 years than in the last century. And most people are pretty committed to bureaucratic structures, we can't. We have to be more nimble. We have to form partnerships faster. Um, we have to tell people that if they have a great idea, they should bring it to Gainesville. If they need computing power, they should come to Gainesville. If they want to partner with the best minds in science and research, they should come to Gainesville. If they want to recruit hungry and gritty students for internships and externships, they should be recruiting in Gainesville. But to be faster at partnering means that we will have to change a lot of our structures. And big organizations, organizations that are blessed to have 86,000 souls, tend to not be really good at rethinking our structures. And so fifth, I would say, those are, those are sort of goals. Five is more an enabler. Better research, more life change for students, better faculty com uh, compensation, 
and more partnerships. But number five, we need to be committed to radical transparency about what we do. If we work at UF, if we get blessed to work here, it means we're public servants. Our checks are cut because Floridians pay their taxes and it's a partnership and we need a partnership to operate with trust and respect and institutions like this tend to be pretty inscrutable to people outside and that's not their fault, it's our burden. It's our job to get better at transparency and at measurement. We need a radical transparency culture where we wanna make sure that Floridians understand what the median student experience is. What's the median student experience? If you took our 16 colleges and schools and you sort of ranked uh, five quintiles from the most engaged to the least engaged student or from the, the most academically productive and meritorious and rigorous to the least. What's the first, what's the middle, and what's the bottom quintile of student experience? We don't know, and we sure as heck haven't told people. We owe that to them. What are their classes? What are their costs? By the way, we're radically underpriced. I'm sure that the television camera isn't actually rolling on the streaming, so I don't mean to be picking a fight, uh, but I think the value of this place is extraordinary and our students tend to not understand how much they're being subsidized. Um, what are the outcomes? Where do they go and give back to the community? What happens to them one, three, and five years post-graduation? How do we measure success? How do we measure grit? How do we measure resilience? Because that's what they're actually gonna need when they go and navigate this disrupted world? How are we stewarding taxpayer resources? How, how do we boost them with private philanthropy? What's the right yin and yang that Maria and her team have to navigate between things that donors think they wanna do and we love that and we're open for business and we wanna hear pitches, but how are we strategic about the top five, seven, and nine things that this institution aims to do? And so then we try to shape some of those donor interests to things that actually advance the measurable goals we've declared for ourselves and for those who support support us. How are we building a sustainable budget model for the next generation of Gators and taxpayers? So much of what the chairman said about Tom Kuntz is an amazing uh, blessing of upgraded culture and quality over the last two, four, and six years, and yet we're not close to where we need to be. Having Chris on this team is an incredibly incredible asset, um, but he has to do a hard job where he takes a lot of arrows because he wants to build a budget process at a place that's had an inadequate budget process. We, should, we will cross subsidize a lot of things at this institution, we should never cross-subsidize accidentally. We should know exactly what produces net revenue and what gets subsidized by that net revenue so we can make intentional choices. So those, in my mind, those are our big five. That this, that's not me declaring something. That's me sort of reciting back what I think I'm hearing from the 13 board members from one-off conversations that we've had, but now that we can have uh, a little bit more in common. That's something I'm committed to. It's something that I know all of you are committed to, both board members and uh, senior leaders at the institution who do this on a full-time basis as opposed to an avocational vo volunteer basis. I think everyone here is ready to roll up their sleeves. Um, to do that well, though, I think there are at least three things we probably need to be a little more honest about. And that brings us back to where the chairman uh, started our meeting yesterday with the culture of excellence comments that have been a part of his uh, sort of guiding vision for this institution for the last six years. And it brings us back to where I uh, mentioned the term raw potential at the beginning. 
we aim for excellence because as Florida's flagship and land grant, uh, this place is excellent and we owe excellence. And to maintain excellence and to upgrade excellence requires making a lot of strategic choices. And so I think when we're honest and we owe it not just to ourselves, um, but we owe it to the public uh, of Florida, UF has a bit of a chicken and egg question. And we talked about it a little bit yesterday with Kathy um, Libo, um with our rankings. Are we big because we're great or are we great because we're big? It's a little bit of both. And it's not always really easy to admit that. There are some things that we get a lot of credit about because we just have the power of large numbers. Um, there are some things that we're getting more and more talent at because we were great. And it's a little bit of back and forth between those, but part of the job of strategy is to distinguish, distinguish, distinguish. And that's some of the work that I was called here to do. Um, and so I wanna say something that is really obvious. It's so obvious that I think it's probably intellectually not challengeable, and yet it's sometimes controversial to admit. Um, there are things that we are extraordinary at, there are things that we are pretty good at, and there are things we're not good enough at. And if we thought about it at a human capital level, there are parts of our institution where we have some really, really extraordinary talent that we maybe don't celebrate enough and praise enough and lift up enough and brand around enough. Um, there's some talent that's pretty good and has a growth mindset. And there are pieces of our talent that maybe not everybody's in the right seat. And so I think we need to just be honest about the fact that an institution that is this great, the 27th best institution in the country, the fifth best uh, public in the country, that's amazing and it's amazing growth. And yet there's so much opportunity before us. We won't seize that opportunity unless we're honest about it. So I think we're gonna to need to talk a good bit um, about thirds, that doesn't mean it's exactly thirds, but we need to think about the stuff where we're really top performers and how we brand more around that, how we attract more talent in those spaces, um, how we reward and celebrate those people and make them the sort of icons of the institution. There's a big middle third um, where we have a lot of opportunity to make more of our middle third programs and people perform like top third programs and people. And then there are places where we, we need to think about when the chairman said yesterday, in a culture of excellence, we don't want to touch anything unless we're excellent at it. There are some lines of business that maybe we shouldn't be in. And, and that's, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing uh, to recognize that the raw potential of this place is a place that has been able to defer a lot of decisions because the rising tide of talent here and of growth in the state has allowed a whole bunch of things to grow. There are places where we need to double down with fertilizer, and there are some places where we're gonna need to prune a little bit. And I think um, being honest about that is healthy. It shouldn't be um, scary. So it sounds tough, but I think it's good news for us to think of the highest and best use of every marginal dollar at this place. And even though that's uh, less sexy than just talking about like last night at dinner, uh, Scott, thank you again for hosting us over at the Beef uh, Teaching Unit. Um, Professor Bola, what a rock star. Um, I want to go into battle with that guy, tackling the problems of uh, infant um, protein deficient children around the globe and how understanding uh, from farm to table, how you can change the world. We need to do a lot more celebrating of that. And then we also sometimes have to come back to the, to the work of doing the more mundane things of saying, 
if we have another marginal dollar, an extra one, or if we had one less, where do we move resources? And we need to have some of those conversations to do right by the talent that is already here, to do right by the talent that'll be here 10 and 20 years after all of us are gone, and we need to do right by the taxpayers of the state. I think this is fun work. Uh, we have a lot of hard work before us, but I don't sense any complacency at this place, and that's one of the reasons I was excited uh, to join. A second thing um, that I think we need to be blunt about is this is less important than the substance, but it's also really important. I, I say this not to be um, the, the definer of this truth. I say it just to report back to you. Um, I spent my first three weeks here just trying to listen to every nook and cranny of the institution I could find. Uh, most of that was physically on the ground in Gainesville. Lots of it has been on the phone and Zoom with a lot of our uh, constituents. Some of those are legislators. Some of those are major donors that are elsewhere. Some of those are alums. Uh, some of those are peer institution leaders. I heard no less than 20 times. I heard, I, this is me quoting, I heard that you guys are like the number five uh, public in the country right now. That is really amazing. What are you known for? 20 times in 21 days, I heard people say some version of, what are you guys really great at? What is the University of Florida known for? I think what that actually means is we're really great at such a broad range of stuff. We didn't have to pick three, four, five, six, seven, eight to brand around. An institution this big, we have 199 academic units. Um, the vast majority of those we should be in, probably not all of them, but the vast majority of them. But you can't possibly brand around 160 or 180 or 140 things. You have to brand around three, four, five, six, seven. Um, and almost no one knows exactly what those are for us. If your list is three, or if your list is five, or if your list is seven, what's on and off the edge of that list, that should be common language among, among all of us. Um, and people don't know externally. And so there isn't just a substantive set of strategic questions we need to make. There's also a branding set of questions. And third, a thing I think we should be honest about, and uh, Amanda has kindly um, shepherded me through one faculty senate session, and I'm sure there will be more to come. Um, but there, we focused a little bit on the pace of change. I think we need to acknowledge um, that there are many places and ways in which we're gonna move faster than we have in the past. Um, that's true for two reasons. One, we've been able, we've had the luxury of deferring a lot of hard decisions in the past, and I think there are great opportunity decisions before us. But two, the pace of change in this space is just going to come a lot faster. Uh, many of you joke that I'm addicted to using the, the shorthand of how weird it is that we all walk around with supercomputers in our pockets and how fast that's changing the world. Um, chat GPT-3 becoming chat GPT-4. We're nuts if we don't recognize how much that's gonna change the world in the next 36 months. And it isn't, oh, people are, it, it is also, oh, people are gonna be able to cheat and have a robot assistant write their uh, papers in sophomore class, general ed classes, that's true. But that's not the issue. The issue is there's a chance for 
everyone, to, everyone, your 11 year old at home, I don't mean to presume everybody has the exact same uh, family I do, but my, my 11 year old at home, a lot of the tutors that we've typically tried to figure out how to get him assistance as, some of those are gonna become robot tutors in the next four and six months at Khan Academy. And it, it would be nuts for fifth and sixth grade math education in the world to not recognize that there is huge potential to having a marginal cost free robot math tutor for every 11 year old on earth. And it's gonna change the educational delivery hybrid modalities of every single discipline we have around here. And so the pace of change is going to be faster. And yet fast change scares us as humans. It's completely natural to be worried and unsettled about what might happen when change comes faster. The historian in me thinks that 200 or 500 years from now, the thing that our moment will be remembered for is the pace of technological change to which we had to adapt, right? There's, we, we're obsessed in our sort of clickbait short-term media talking about politics. I don't think 200 years from now, anybody's gonna pay any attention to our politics. That isn't what's extraordinary about our moment. Our politics are messed up uh, for the same reason that almost everything else in life feels unsettled. And that is in all of human history, lives have centered on people that you were physically breaking bread with and work has centered on atoms. In the future, the vast majority of work is gonna center on bits, not atoms. There's never gonna be more brawn-based jobs on earth than there are today. It will only decline from here. 32-ish percent of American workers in the late 1950s worked in big tool economy jobs, factories. A third of all people worked in factories in the 1950s. Today, it's just under 7% in the US. Our total output is more today than it was in the 1950s in terms of material output. And that 7% share is only going to decline from here. There will never be a bringing back of brawn-based jobs everybody's work, the broad-based jobs are super important. Last night I said that when we were over at the beef training unit um, that literally my son and I are probably gonna be over there shoveling manure sometime in the next two weeks because uh, I think it's an important part of coming of age to, to have to do physical hard labor. Um, so broad-based jobs are really important but there are always gonna be less of them. And the people in broad-based jobs are also gonna be knowledge workers. And so we have to train a world for that. And that means we have to be honest that um, the ways that we interact with people, humans need to break bread, we need hugs, right? But the vast majority of our psychology is still oriented around people and relationships that are not physically in front of you right at that moment. And we need to prepare our kids for that world. I applaud the, the presentation yesterday on mental health, so much important work um, that you two trustees did and your team did. Um, but a huge part of this is simply because of how disorienting it is to go from mostly a physical tactile world where you touch the people you love to having more than 50% of your engagement, even with the people you love, being them not physically with you in that moment. And then all these other voices in your head all the time. This radically transforms education and we can't go slow. We don't face the crisis of the demographic cliff. If you're a liberal arts college in rural upstate New York, you got big problems because there aren't enough college ready students coming in five and 10 years. Mary Parker knows this world better than any of us. We don't have that problem. 
We had 70,000 applications last year for 6,000 slots, partly because we're great, partly just because there are a lot of people who are gonna become college ready in this part of the country or who wanna come to this part of the country. We have a luxury that we don't have to do this you know, against a ticking clock of economic crisis for us, but that doesn't give us an opportunity to be complacent. So I think we should take comfort, not complacency, out of the fact that we don't have the same sort of urgency before us, but we have even more opportunity to outcompete people and to do more to love our neighbor. We need to move quickly, um, but that means recognizing that a lot of times um, you go slow to go fast. Uh, there are some very big uh, decisions and changes that I think we'll need to make over the course of the next 18 months. And so we'll announce in a much more formal way um, in May, June, a strategic planning process that'll run us through the academic year 23-24. Um, but there's both sprint in life and marathon in life. And for those of you who do distance running, sometimes there's the weird uh, sprint at the beginning to get away from the pack and then settle into your marathon pace. But one of the most fundamental things is to ask, do I have the right kind of uh, nutrition supplements for the run? And do I have the right shoes on? And so we need to do some process resets as well. And maybe that's enough for a first 30 days of observation. Thanks for letting me join the team, Chairman. Awesome.